allowed me to wear her backup glasses. I'm so grateful for that. Really was a, I was threatened within inches of my life not to let anything happen to these glasses. So with, with great respect and reverence and fear. If you just want to write something down today, here's what you can write. Are you ready? How to get from where you are to be where you want to be. How do you get from where you are to be where you want to be? I noticed in a book that I shared with you several weeks ago, Toys in the Toy Box by Roy Hunter makes this statement. I don't think, I don't think he originally made it. I think it was made by somebody else. But this is the statement that he made. Life without goals is like a race without a finish line. Think about that just for a minute. Life, life without goals is like a race without a finish line. How boring would that be? How frustrating would that be? How, how uncool would that be to run a race that there was no end, there was no finish line, there was no prize, there was no, there was no expected end, no occurry. The Apostle Paul, who, according to many, was probably one of the greatest scholars in the, in the Bible, next to Jesus, he wrote more of the Bible than anybody else. About halfway through his life, he's been beaten, been thrown in prison, has been stoned, left for dead. A lot of things have happened to him. He's at a place probably where, where he could say that I can retire now. I'm finished with what God has for me. He makes a statement. He said, brethren, I count not myself to have apprehended in other words, I'm not done yet. But this one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forth unto those things which are before. In other words, going from where I am to where I want to be, this is what I do. I press towards the mark. And that word press in the Greek is like a dam that the water, there's been a flood and the water is all the way at the top of the dam and the, and the water is pushing with such intensity that the dam's about to burst. That's the same verb. Another verb in the sports world is when those, when those football players hit those blocky, those, those tackle dummies. How many have ever seen uh, three or four football players crash into a tackle and, and, and somebody is behind it trying to stop them? How many have seen that? And, but they keep pushing it back and back. That's the same Greek word. And that's what Paul said. He said, I press towards the mark. In other words, there is a goal. There is a finish line of the prize of the high calling of God through Christ Jesus. And the Apostle Paul acknowledges that he's focused on the things that are spiritual, and he can do all things through Christ. That's his, that's his attitude. He's letting us know, although I've written most of the New Testament, I've done, I've done some incredible things, I've been beat up for my testimony, my stand for God, it's going to cost you something. He said, but I don't feel like that I am finished yet. And he will go on and write two more incredible letters before, before he is beheaded for his testimony. From the, from the life of Paul today, I would like for us to learn or acknowledge there has got to be some goals in our life. And I've jotted down a couple of goals, and I believe if I were to ask you a question, where do you want to be, I believe the answer would determine on how old you are or how blonde your hair is. So just, just, just because I can, I thought about where do you want to be if you're 16, you probably want a boyfriend and a car. That would probably be a couple of goals in your life. If you're 18, you will probably 
want a boyfriend, a car, and a college scholarship. If you're 22, you probably want a husband and a dishwasher and a job. If you're 30, you probably want a bass boat, a motorcycle, and you want to win the lottery. If you're 40, you probably want a house, two jobs, and a wife that will cook for you and sleep with you. At the age of 50, you want to win the lottery. At the age of 60, all you want is your teeth, your hearing, and your reading glasses. At the age of 70, you want to check every month, and you're frustrated because the grandkids won't come over and visit. How did, how did we do? So depending upon how old you are, go ahead. How old you are determines on what kind of goals you have set for yourself in life. And when I thought about goals, and I was, I was sitting on the front row worshiping with you just for a moment, I felt like the Lord popped three things in my spirit for everyone in this house. There are three goals that I would like for everyone in this house to have before 2011 comes to closure. May I share those with you? Number one, I would like for your number one goal, and I have two lifelong friends. Matter of fact, we had a blast a few days ago. Uh, Perry Stone called and said, are you guys playing the snow? I said, we are. Come hang out. Amanda came out. Perry came out. Uh, Amanda went down a trail that I made, crashed right in the bush, whacked her head, got blood on her forehead. And then Perry and I were just standing talking, and he lost, he lost his footing. His feet went straight up and did a face plant in the snow. He got up his, his face, and his, and his glasses were all had ice and snow. And I said, Pam is not going to let you come play with me anymore. It ain't going to happen. But, but, but Perry, a lifelong friend, Marcus, a lifelong friend, the success of Daystar and the success of VOE, I believe, I believe there's several reasons, but one of the number one reasons is that both of those ministries are debt-free. Debt-free. Debt is a disqualifier. Death is a, death, all, all death does is bring frustration and problems. And you get to a place where you can plug your phone during the day because the only people calling are the people that you owe $39.95 to. You've been making the payment for 81 years. They ought to know by now you're good for it. But if you don't make it on a certain date, they, they will spend $81.21 to get $39.90. It doesn't make sense. But I, I would like for our goal to be in 2011 for us to be debt-free. The second thing that I would like for us to be in 2011 would be to be, are you ready for this? Doubt-free. Doubt-free. I'm telling you, if we could have faith the size of a grain of a mustard seed, that's not a whole lot of faith. If we could just read the red, pray for the power, believe the book says it will do what it says it will do. It is our book. It's our destiny. And we can start operating some of those things. I believe you'd see some things turn around in your life if you saw the glass half full instead of half empty. Doubt, doubt is a destroyer. The Word of God did not say Jesus didn't. It said he couldn't. There are restrictions on God. God cannot bless you if you're not a tither. That's a restriction. Jesus could not operate in that city because their doubt was so enormous. It didn't say, it didn't say he didn't or wouldn't. It said he could do no miracles because their doubt was so strong. Doubt will tie the hands of God. It'll tie faith operating in your life. And the Bible says without faith, it's impossible to please God. For he that cometh to God must believe that he is and that he is a what? Help me. Shout, shout at me. A rewarder of them that diligently seek him. Seek ye first the kingdom of God, his righteousness, everything else adds. So we have got this set into the expectancy of Daniel that something is going to happen when I pray. Something's going to happen when I fast. Something's going to happen when I confess the positive things. I'm not talking about lying. I'm, I'm, I'm talking about speaking things that are not as you would like them to be. 
I mean, if you're sick, you got 105 fever, you got green stuff flowing down your face, it's obvious you have a cold. Don't walk around and tell people, I ain't sick, nothing wrong with me. No, you tell people, the blood of Jesus said, I am healed, and I'm walking in agreement that I'm going to be healed in Jesus' name. That's how you speak those things that aren't as they are, and so shall they be. If our vocabulary, if our vernacular could simply change from half full, to, from half empty to half full, I believe we'd have, have a lot more peace in our life and walk a lot more in the fullness of the things that God has for us. The Word of God says, I will send you to a flock that you are to be a part of, that's scary. And I will give you a shepherd. We are gifts to you. And this shepherd will feed you. And in the feeding, you will not fear, you will not lack, and you will prosper. Three things that God has for you when you start walking where you're supposed to be walking, eating where you're supposed to be eating, and doing what you're supposed to be doing, the, the fear in your life will be gone, the lack in your life will be gone, and you'll actually start seeing some of your seed bud, burst, and begin to produce extra for you to help the life of others. I'm teaching better than you're not. That's okay. Get these glasses on. I can't tell what you're doing, but it's awful quiet out there just for a minute. The third thing that I would like for us to be in 2011, I put some thought in this before I, before I, I, I wanted to speak it out. I want us to be debt-free. I want us to be doubt-free. And I want us to be drug-free. If there's anything physical in our life that's got a hook in our jaw, I would like to see in 2011 for us to be cut and for it to be severed. I've shared with this house, you know that I do not believe that smoking will send you to hell. I just think it makes you smell like you've been there already. But, but the, point, the point of being involved in drug rehab for 31 years, I've watched people give up morphine, heroin, crack, oxy, of Xanax. I've watched people stop huffing gas. I've, I've watched people stop sh shooting sugar water. Some people shoot just because they're addicted to the needle, not the drug. But the number one thing that the first thing the enemy tries to bring in our life to put us in bondage is nicotine. The last thing to leave our repertoire being delivered is usually nicotine. Can anybody relate? You don't have to wave your hand. But I believe God wants you drug-free in 2011. Now, if you're hooked to coffee, that doesn't count. Coffee does not fall under that category or honey buns. Honey buns and coffee, you guys are under the blood all is well. But I believe, that, I, I, believe that, I believe that your body, your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. And right now, the whole attitude of this church needs to be in a season of grief and a season of expectation and a season of deliverance. Sonia needs a miracle in her body. She needs God to heal the cancer they found in her lungs. And she will be the first one to tell you, like many of us, she smoked for a long, a long time. And that, that, those cigarettes have destroyed the temple of the Holy Ghost. God, ha God has, and I believe God will. Hello. We're not praying, if it be thy will, heal her. We're praying, God, you heal her in Jesus' name. Let's make sure we're all in agreement in that prayer that God's going to heal her and God's going to touch her body. But Sonia will not keep smoking. She will shut that down. She will get that out of her life because that's brought her hurt and pain. They've been trying to tell us for years, if you smoke, it could damage your body. It could damage your baby. It could damage your, your life. It could steal hours, years from your life. And so maybe it's God's will for 2011 for us just to be debt-free, doubt-free, and drug-free. How would I do? Is that good? Are those three good things? Okay. In order for us to, and the, 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 the lesson this morning is a very short one. It comes from some very good sources, but it's going to be a short one. The Apostle Paul said, there's some, some things that I have to do. There's some things I have to deal with. There's some things that I have to address. And let me share with you one of the main things that the Apostle Paul dealt with. 
The Apostle Paul, whose name was Saul, when he began his, his life as a child, he was hired by the Sanhedrin to bring destruction to the church of God. It was the attitude of the Hebrew world that the, the Christian church was out of order. It was satanic. It was demonic. And the Apostle Paul had carte blanche. He had permission. He had a band of soldiers. He had soldiers at, at his hands, and they would find where Christians lived. And at any time of the day, middle of the night, whenever they wanted to, they would kick down the doors of those homes where Christians were praying, trying to serve God. They would take the men and put them into the, the Rome the, the, the places where the lions fed, the gladiators battled. They would take the ladies and they would dip them in oil and, play, and place them in the hanging gardens where they would be light at night. When Nero wanted to walk through his garden, they would light the martyrs and the, and the children were placed into slavery or into captivity. This is what the Apostle Paul did for a living. How would you like every day when you go to bed to remember that you were the reason that hundreds, maybe thousands of Christians died, murdered, were fed to lions, were dipped into oil, they were placed in slavery? How would you like that, that, that memory process? The Apostle Paul said, there's something that I've got to do. Didn't say he went Benny Hinn laid hands on him. Didn't say he got a tape from Daystar. He came up with a decision in his heart. I have got to forget the things of yesterday because if I don't, they're going to disqualify me, discredit me. They're going to destroy me. And my mind is going to cause me to do things that will want to hurt myself. Can anybody relate? So the Apostle Paul said, in order to get to where I want to be, there's some things that I need to address. And I want to share today that I believe that there are some things that we need to address. And I want to, uh, the, the, the points that I want to make are brief. Point number one that I want to make today, if I can, is that you've got to make a decision to take 100% responsibility for yourself. 100% responsibility for your actions. 100% responsibility for where you are right now. There was a cute story I believe I read in Reader's Digest of a Californian on vacation in Tennessee, and he was driving through the mountains, and he saw a sign that said, last chance for gas, 50 miles. He said, well, we better get gas. He pulled over, got gas, went in the store. There was the clerk behind the counter, and the, and the clerk welcomed him to Tennessee and said, hey, he said, by the way, I want you to know that chicory is on the house. Now, I don't know if any of you have ever tried chicory. Uh, it's probably kind of like drinking gasoline. It's horrible. It's nasty. It's, it's, it's pretty gross. It's, there's nothing appealing to it. But for some reason, there are people in Tennessee that like to drink it. They like to brew it. They like to drink it. And so he told the store owner, told the California tourist, said, hey, chicory is on the house. Help yourself. And the guy looked at it, smelled it, said, no, I don't think I'm going to mess with it. The, the clerk reached behind the counter, pulled out a 357, pointed at the tourist and said, I said, drink it. So at gunpoint, the tourist was forced to drink a cup of chicory. Then the clerk took the gun, handed it to the tourist and said, now you force me to drink a cup. <laughs> What's the point that I want to make? The point I want to make is that no one forced you to smoke a cigarette. No one forced you to drink a beer. No one forced you to put a needle in your arm. No one forced you to cheat on your income tax. No one, no one forced you to do the things you did. You did it. And you need to take responsibility for it. It's time that in our life that we need to stop blaming everything and everybody for where we are. 
and know that this has been going on since day one. Look at somebody and say, since day one. When Adam, Adam and Eve disobeyed God in the garden and there was consequences for their actions, when God came to where they were, they had lost their spiritual covering. They found themselves naked, guilty, ashamed. When God called out to them and they responded out of fear and, and out of hiding and told God that they were naked and God said, who told you that you were naked? Did you eat of the tree? And immediately, immediately, the man blames the woman. God, the woman you gave me, she made me do it. No, she didn't have a 357 or a taser. She did not know karate. She did not twist his arm and force that apple in his mouth. Hello. He did it on his own. There was no, there was no force. There was no manipulation. When, when God turned towards the woman, the woman said, God, the snake, the talking snake, the snake convinced me to do it. The woman blamed the snake. Listen. Always beware, when a snake starts talking, it's time to run. Do not pass go, not collect $200, just run. Do not talk to talking snakes. There's something wrong with that picture. But Eve began to entertain, Eve began to entertain that counsel, began to entertain that temptation, began to entertain that lie. And when Eve ate, she blamed the snake. Poor snake, he didn't have anybody to blame. He was out of, there was no one. I mean, who do you blame? I mean, you're, you're, you're the one, you did it. And you see the judgment that came to the snake, to Eve, and to Adam that, that came to them because of disobedience. And we know the, 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 the judgment on the animal kingdom. The snake apparently walked upright. It was a beautiful creature. It was the most beautiful creature in the garden, many scholars believe. But because, because the snake was used to, to deceive the woman, he had to crawl on his belly and eat dust the rest of his life. The woman who I believe God planned for women to have children, I don't know that when God created the, the woman that he intended for her to go through the labor, the pain of childbirth, the, the nightmare of childbirth, all of, all of that attached to childbirth. Because when God looked at the woman, he said, from this day forward, in labor shall you bring forth, in, in, in pain shall you bring forth children. I don't believe that God intended originally. So that's something you can take up with Eve, ladies, when you get there. And I'm sure that you will. The third, the third judgment on Adam, God told Adam, he said, from now on, you're going to have a war against the thorns, the thistles, the weeds, and the thickets. They're going to fight you, and you're going to have to hack and whack, and you're going to have to make a living now. See, at that, in that season, they were just naming all that God had created. They were walking through God's creation. They had dominion. I personally believe they had the ability to walk on the floor of the ocean. They could not drown. I believe they had the ability to fly, travel by thought. That's just all personal thoughts that I have. But when they disobeyed, they lost all of that. And their days become numbered and they actually tasted death is because they all blame one another. I always ponder this thought. What would have happened when God confronted Adam if Adam would have said, God, I'm sorry. I have I have failed. I have messed up. I want to repent. I want to I want to make things right. I want to I want another chance. I wonder the God of mercy that we serve. I wonder how this would have all played out if Adam would just simply taken responsibility for his actions and not trying to blame anybody. Where could where would we have gone from there? We don't know. We know we're here. We are now. We can't second guess. Uh, hindsight is not 2020. It's 2040. There's not a lot that we can change. But I know a merciful God that we serve. I believe he would extend mercy to Adam, and maybe things would be a little different today. But the point is, Adam did not repent. He did not take responsibility. He blamed the woman. The woman blamed the snake. 
There's a, there's a the passage of scripture that I want to share with you in, in just a minute. But let me share a word, if I may, from George Washington Carver. Does anybody remember the name? Anybody? Hema, you, you do not know who that is. Waver. You do not know. You do not know who George Washington Carver is. You do not know. Now you know. Now you know you go for lying, right? Phoenix. Okay. George Washington Carver found 325 uses for the peanut. A man with way too much spare time. <laughs> way too much spare time. 300. What George, I would have been satisfied with just 10. Hey, 10 uses for the peanut. That's, that's all we need. But he came up with three. Let me tell you what George Washington Carver said, and I quote him if I may. 99% of all failures come from people who have a habit of making excuses. 99% of all failure. We've told you about Thomas Edison a thousand times. I don't know how he documented how many times, but history says a thousand times, 999 times, Hayden, he failed with the light bulb. But a thousandth time, it worked. Aren't you glad he didn't give up? Aren't you glad he didn't quit? Aren't you glad he kept pushing until it happened? There was a time in Tom, Tom Edison's life when the warehouse, all of their inventions, all of their patents, all of their new ideas, all of their new thoughts, their new project, this warehouse caught on fire, and it was a fire to behold. And Thomas's son was so, he was freaking out when he saw the fire. He said, Dad is going to lose it. All of his dreams, all of his ideas, all of his, his whole life is in that building, and now it's going up in smoke. And he saw his dad, and he ran up to his dad to comfort him. All his dad could do was turn to him and say, son, go find your mom. I don't want her to miss a fire like this. He was so caught up in the fire that he, he, didn't, he put no thought of everything on the inside. It was, it was his whole life work, his whole life story, everything he had researched, all the things he had not yet finished. Later that night, in the ashes, all the staff is there, all the workers are there, and in the ashes, he told his staff, I become so busy and so distracted and so burdened with all this stuff of the past. He said, I'm glad this has happened. This has allowed me now to have a fresh start, some fresh things, some new things I've been wanting to do. And he went on from that day till his death to invent and patent over a hundred more things that changed our life and changes our life today. Did not let the things of yesterday, did not let the, the failures of the past, did not blame anybody, simply took acknowledgement for what went on and made things happen. In Matthew, the 25th chapter, the 15th verse, and I read this last night. I, I, I shared with you a book a few Sundays ago called Toys in the Toy Box by Roy Hunter. A neat book. If you were here that Sunday, you know we looked at some of the toys and, and, and we made some spiritual references to them. But he shared some things that I, that I've read this passage of Scripture I, many of you probably read it a hundred times. It's, it's that much a famous passage. And it's a story where the Lord takes three people and he gives one person five talents and he gives one person three talents and he gives one person one talent. And then he tells them to take what he has given them to invest it and to, and to make a profit. And so he departs for a season and he comes back. And the guy that had the five talents had invested those five talents and had doubled his investment, had, 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 had come up now with ten talents. The guy that had three talents, he too invested, and he made three more. He doubled what God had given him. The guy that had the one talent took it, hid in the earth, did absolutely nothing, did nothing with his talent, 
And then later the, the, the Lord confronts him and says, you could have put it in the bank and at least drawn interest from it. You could have done something with it. And then a very harsh statement that comes out of the mouth of that Lord. He said, depart from me. And he cast him into a place of outer darkness where there was weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth. This is a strong, strong story, I believe, for everyone in this house. And you've heard me, you've heard me comment. I have friends in my life that have five talents. I t- I sh- I've shared with you about Lemuel Miller. Lemuel Miller, world karate champion, 1980, the only person to ever defeat Chuck Norris in competition. He was the president of World Karate Championship. His daughter, fifth degree black belt, won every, 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 Every division she entered to, she won. Everything Lemuel touches, he won a bass boat in a tournament. He raises, he raises dogs and sells them for 15, he made over $175,000 last year raising dogs. How cool is that? He traveled with Bill Gaither. He right now is pastoring a great church in South Georgia. Pastor Ron and I have both been there and ministered. He is a five-talent guy. I hate guys like that. Everything he touches turns to gold. You get so, you get so jealous. You, want to, you just wish some of that stuff would fall on you. Then there are three talent. I've got, I've got three talent people in my life that everything they touch is blessed, and they, they do well with what they have. But then you got the guy that's got, that's got a talent and does absolutely nothing with it. And I believe every one of us are going to stand before God and we're going to give account for our talent. We're going to give account for our gift, for our destiny, for our careers, for our goals, for, for our life. I believe God puts us in this, on this earth to make this earth a better place for someone else. If you've never fed somebody that's hungry and seen that smile that comes on their face when their tummy is full, if you've never seen that look of pride when a person puts on a coat and realizes their coat and they can do whatever they want, if you've never been to a prison or you've never seen a person delivered from drugs because you prayed for them or helped them, you've never tasted the joy that God has for the church today. But God put everyone upon, every one of us upon this earth with talents and gifts. And one day we're going to stand before God and we're going to give account for the gifts and talents that we have. And God let us, and let us not stand before God and say, well, God, I didn't do anything with that banner ministry. Or I didn't do anything with that, that mind ministry. Or I didn't do anything with that singing. I didn't do anything with that trumpet playing. I, did, I, I, I had that talent, but I didn't use it at all. Woe on us if we stand before God and say, I didn't use what you gave me to further and bless the kingdom. That's not the point I want to make. Here's the point I want to make. The five guy and the three guy, when the Lord approached them they made this statement we took what you gave us and we and we and we doubled it it took 16 words for them to tell the lord what they had done and the lord said well done thy good and faithful servant the guy that had one talent it took 43 words for him to try to explain to the lord why he didn't do anything with his talent how ironic the guy that did the least amount of work talked the most Look to the left, look to the right, form your own conclusions. You've got to come to a place in your life where you stop blaming and you stop complaining and you stop making excuses. Powerful story in the Bible in Luke, the 14th chapter. You may go there if you desire. It's a great story about a banquet that you and I have been invited to be a part of. Luke 14 starts out with the person that went to the the banquet table And before he was told where to sit, he sat at the place of honor. He sat at the best spot, the best seat. 
And, the, and the, the Lord of the banquet came to him and said, no, I don't have this seat for you. You, you sit down here. And it was embarrassing. And the Lord was telling us, don't think more highly of ourselves than we ought. Make sure we deal with our pride. Make sure we walk in humility. Then a story, he tells a story about when you give a banquet, you invite the wealthy, you invite the rich, you invite the, 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 all of those that, that have accolades about them in order that later you too will be invited to a rich person's house or a famous person's house. Jesus said, that's not the kind of banquet I want you to give. When you have a banquet, I want you to invite the sick, the needy, the halt, the lame, all those that are hurting, I want you to invite them knowing that they will never pay you back. They, they will... They, they, they will never give you what you've given them. That was the attitude of God. And how powerful is that? Yesterday, from 9 o'clock to about 8 o'clock last night, I spent the entire day yesterday running errands for, for people that didn't have stuff. As the whole day. The whole day. We spent the whole day getting beds to people that didn't have beds, getting microwaves to people that didn't have microwaves. Spent the whole day. And, and when my head hit the pillow last night, it wasn't like I didn't fast, I didn't pray, I didn't write a sermon, I didn't speak in tongues, I didn't prophesy, I, I didn't levitate. There was no great super spiritual breakthrough. There was no revelation. God didn't wake me up and pound things on me. But when, I, when my head hit the pillow last night, I, I fell asleep knowing I did something today to impact the kingdom of God. I did something today. This is what Jesus would have done. He would have gone to the womb of the well. He would have taken the time. He would have sowed in her life. And you've got the closure of every day. You've got to come to a place where you feel like you did something significant in the kingdom to bless somebody. And you've got to come to a place where you can't blame or make excuses. It, it just, you, just, you just make a decision to do it. The third story I want to share is a story where a certain Lord provides a, prepares a banquet. And this is, a, this is a, a first-class banquet. And then he sends his servant to all of his friends. And he said, go invite my friends to come to this banquet. And look at the 14th chapter. Well, oh, I can't see. I've been healed. Oh, wait a minute. I got glasses on. Look, the 14th, Todd, you might have to hold my Bible for me. I'll let, you, I'll let you find out where it is. It looks like it might be verse 16. A certain man gave a great supper and invited many and sent his servant at supper time to say to those who were invited, come for all things are now ready. Sound like the rapture of the church to me. But they all with one accord, watch this, say all with one accord, begin to make excuses. Excuse, not reasons. And there are reasons why we don't do something. These are not reasons. They're excuses. And look how, look how stupid they are. One of them is not stupid, but two are stupid. The first one said, I have bought a piece of ground, and I must go and see it. You dummy, you should have examined it before you bought it. Come on. Help me out now. I mean, what a stupid excuse. I bought some property. Gonna go. You haven't looked at it yet? You bought it without looking at it? And another said, I have bought five yoke of oxen, and I'm going to test them. I ask you to have me excused. You bought the oxen without testing them. You bought the oxen. To, you bought a tool that you're going to use to work, and you bought it before you tested it. Come on now. I mean, I mean, nobody can go there. The third guy is the only one that's of God. He's the only one that really has a, a reason. Still another said, I have married a wife, and therefore I cannot come. Let the guy say amen. If mama ain't happy, ain't nobody happy, and we're not going to do anything to, to, to mess with that. Is, is the church in agreement with me there? Amen. The other two had excuse. The third guy had the reason, and he did well. So then the servant came and reported these things to the master. Then the master of the house, watch this. 
being angry. I believe God gets real irritated sometimes with our, our, our lousy excuses. I mean, if you're going to come up with an excuse, come up with a good one. Go get married. I mean, that, you know, that's about as good as, as, you, can, as you can have. But, but it's, hard, it's hard to grasp God getting angry because we're not coming to where he wants us to come to eat what he wants us to eat, to enjoy what he wants us to enjoy. There's a banquet that he's prepared. There's food there that is going to satisfy our appetite. And obviously, this is a spiritual story. Actually, this is a spiritual call. Actually, God is calling us to come to a place and enjoy him, learn of him, grow of him. And I, I believe the local church is one of the best places in the world that we come and, and we're fed and we grow and we, we learn how to use our gifts. We get to practice on one another. We take it to the street to perfect it. I believe it's, I believe it's important that we use our talents and gifts in the church. I believe that. I've always believed that. But because they did not respond, and, and Jesus said, forsake not the assembling of yourselves together, especially as you see that day. The closer you see us coming to the end of time, the more that we gather in church to learn the plan, to, to, get, to, get, to know what the, what the direction of the church, the purpose of the church, and somehow to be involved. This church is very, very little commitment. We ask you to come and bring some food. We ask you to be a part of prayer. We ask you to, you know, the men show up on Monday night. We pray. We do things for people that are, that are hurting. There's not a whole lot of pressure put on us being a part of the church, but we want all the benefits that come with the church. Come on. We want all of our prayers answered. We want all of our, all of our needs met. We want all of our little, little idiosyncrasies satisfied. We want it to be about us. We don't want the muse to be too loud. We don't want it to be too soft. We want the service to be too long, too short. We don't want bald-headed people on the platform. We think bald-headed people are attractive. I mean, we have our own, our own opinion, our own way, our own. Wouldn't it be something if all of us just get on one track for one, just at one season and say, we're going to feed every hungry person in the city? Wouldn't it be cool if just one church would say, we're going to clothe everybody in this city and have that clothes to go to work, clothes to go to Walmart, clothes to go to church. Wouldn't it be something if we just decide that we're going to have a drug rehab that anybody can come, be restored. We're going to help them get their driver's license back, help them pay their fines off, help them rent a house, help them plug in a new job. I mean, how cool would that be if, if all this got, just got focused on one thing at one time? But it says that the, the Lord, and we, we assume this is God, got angry and said to his servants, watch this, go out quickly into the streets and lanes of the city and bring in here, watch this, the poor and the maimed and the lame and the blind. Four categories of people. I don't have time to expound on that. But obviously, the north, south, east, and west, God is giving the church an invitation to bring anybody you want. It doesn't matter how bound they are on drugs. It doesn't matter how messed up they are in their gender. It doesn't matter what their financial woes are. It doesn't matter the color of skin. It doesn't matter what denomination they're from. None of that matters. Just get them here. Why? Because the table has been prepared. Food has been brought. Their needs are going to be met. Get them to the table. Get, do whatever it takes. Get them to the table. And the servant said, Master, it is done as you commanded, and still, watch this, there is room. I like that song by, um, I'm not sure who sings it, but it talks about my, my father has a great big house, a great big yard, and plenty of food where we can play football. Who, who sang that? That's the that's God that we serve. There's room. The song says there's room at the cross for one. Though millions have come, there's still room for one. 
That's the heart of the God that I serve, is that there's plenty to go around. I'm not rationing. I'm not budgeting. I want to I want to overwhelm you. I want to chase you down with a good job. I want to chase you down with the blessing, with the favor. I'm building you a good husband. I'm building you a good wife. I'm a good God. And as we do what God has called us to do, he said, hey, there's still room. There's still room for some more. And then he goes on and says, here's what I want you to do. Go out in the highways and hedges and compel them to come in. That, that word compel is one not short. Of, 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 of forced by a gun. How many knows what forced by a gun is? The chicory guy, you remember? You drink this or else. That, that, that verb compel is almost illegal. It's almost, it's almost assault and battery. It's almost God is saying, you do whatever it takes to get them to this banquet. And I believe that's the call that God has given this church. You do whatever it takes to get them to the house of God. Invite them out to eat. Tell them you'll mow their lawn. Tell them you'll buy a bed from them. Tell them you'll, buy, tell them you'll come to their store and, 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 you'll, and you'll honor their, their, their business. Do whatever it takes to get them to come. There's, pl- there's plenty of room. The, 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 the master got angry at their excuses. Okay, we're in trouble. We have 11 minutes to cover three more things. But I just, I got a feeling that we can do that. Everybody say, praise God, that page is done. And almost all of this, 16 words to complete what God has, 43 words that did not complete. Don't be one of those people that talk why you don't get it done. Be one of those people why you do it. The second thing that I believe that we absolutely need to do is that we need to realize as little children we were taught the safest ride at Disney World is what? Help me, parents. The safest ride at when you went to Disney World with an infant or with a toddler, what was the safest ride there? Shout at it. Shout at me. Shout, shout at me. The, everybody say, everybody say, no, teacup's dangerous. The teacup could hurt you. Things jump out and try to scare you. Christine can tell you all about the teacup. That was not God's will for her life that day. It was not. We had deliverance and prayer and healing and communion. The merry-go-round. See, the merry-go-round, some of the horses don't move. On the merry-go-round, all you do is go in a circle. You don't jerk. You don't fall. It doesn't get dark. Lights don't flash. Music doesn't play. Well, the music plays. But it's safe. Life is like a rocking horse. It gives you something to do, but it doesn't get you anywhere. I'm trying, I'm trying to rack my brain. I think I remember my rocking horse had springs. Where's our, where's our, just our, you just had the wooden, you just had the back and forth seesaw. Where's, where's our rocking horse people? How many, I, I can't remember that young. I, I've, I've eaten way too many drugs. I can't remember how many of you, you remember your horse had springs? Okay, so, so the, up, the, the white collars. Okay, the white collars, we had a horse where you didn't just rock, but you went up and down. And if, and if you really wasn't careful, you could fall off and get hurt. It's, especially an older brother putting his foot on the tail of the horse and flipping you over. I was the older brother. My younger brother could tell you. He's got stitches in his head that I hurt him. See, the rocking horse gives you motion it gives you movement, but it accomplishes nothing. A lot of people are doing stuff that accomplishes nothing. And when I think, when I think about the rocking horse, and I think about the rocking chair, and now you guys get tired of hearing me say it, but worry is like a rocking chair. 
It gives you something to do, but it never gets you anywhere. And did you notice that 90% of the stuff you worry about never comes to pass? In other words, if you want bad things not to happen to you, you should worry about them because they're probably not going to happen. How many got that? How many got that pun right there? I realized I, I was I was being sarcastic. But the thing, I mean, think about it. The sky is falling. How many saw the the chicken and the and the sky and the the sky ain't falling. The sky the sky ain't gonna fall. There ain't nothing. Horton hears a who? How many? How do I remember Horton? See the things that they worried about the most. It it never takes place. Some of the things that we worry about the most is never going to take place. And that's, that's why the Lord says, be careful for nothing or don't worry. But everything in prayer and intercession, make your request known unto God. And he will begin the process of bringing them to pass. But if you disqualify yourself by motion and movement, but no progress, then you'll never, you'll never step out of that boat, step out of that place, step out of that crib and go where God wants you to go. And some things I wrote down about the rocking horse, and I'll be very brief about the rocking horse. There are four different types of, of rocking horses. First of all, there's the dead horse. How many have ever heard said, don't, don't, don't kick a dead horse? Don't, don't, don't beat a dead horse. I think a lot of us have set parameters in our life that, that qualify us to be disqualified. There are events in our life. There are things in our life. There, there, there's, there's moments in our life. There's memories in our life that we have pretty much disqualified ourselves that we're not going to go the next step because of that dead horse in our life. Listen, there's nothing that dead horse can do that can bring you any blessing, any prosperity, any favor. It's a horse that you need to remove from your life. Walk away. Dead things smell. Walk away from the dead things in your life and realize that the promises of God are yea and amen through Christ Jesus. And remember, the greatest guy that God used next to Jesus was who? That's not a trick question. In, your, in your, your opinion, who's the greatest man in the Bible besides Jesus? I would say, I would, I would say New Testament. Will we all pretty much say Paul? I mean, is Paul one of the greatest writers, one of the greatest testimonies, one of the greatest? Paul was a murderer. Probably was divorced. He had to be married to be a member of the Sanhedrin. He never mentions a wife. Matter of fact, he had a major attitude towards women. He said, I wish you were all like me, single. You read it, it says it. Oh, yeah, he didn't want women preaching in church. He obviously had a chick that was too tense, that was too tight, that was in his life, that, 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 that messed with him a little bit. You, you read it. You, you see the thing. He goes, I, I speak not God. I speak, hello, I speak not God that, that women should be quiet in church. Well, aren't you glad women are not quiet in church? Because if you heard, listen, I promise you, if Paul, Matt, and Tim Sally did a trio, 90% of you, first of all, 12% would commit suicide. The other 82% would leave all four doors, and those three guys would be up here singing by themselves. And how many knows I'm telling the truth? And I see Travis and Pastor Barb's hand lifted. I see, I see Charity's hand lifted. I've never heard anybody sing as flat as Paul. I'm serious. I mean, I mean he needs divine impartation. He needs healing. He needs, he needs a transplant. He's a, he's, but, 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 but would you not say, would you not say the Apostle Paul is probably the greatest influence in your life? When you begin to think of the scriptures you're living by and quoting, he was, he was a murderer that killed Christians. If we were in 2011, Paul could come in with 30 guys with Uzis, line us up against the wall, kill every man in the building, take every woman off in captivity, put all the kids in slavery. He had the ability to do that. 
But yet God took a murderer, God took a family destroyer, a children murderer, took him and made him one of the greatest voices in the church. And he paid for it. There was, there was a price to pay for that anointing. There was a price to pay for that favor that God gave him. He was tortured. He was beaten. He was stoned. And finally, he was beheaded. But history says that before they took his life, they put his head on the block. He began to sing in the Holy Ghost. And when that sword separated his head from his body, his, the head in the basket, the mouth was still moving, singing in tongues. That's the kind of testimony that I want to have. I want to have the testimony that he came to where I was, got me away from drugs and alcohol, put a new song in my heart, put a new road in my path, put a new, a new family, a new opportunity, a new choice. And I lived my life to its fullest. And the day I died, I was still declaring his goodness and his favor and his mercy. What kind of goal is that? Give the Lord a hand clap of appreciation, if you will. Let's move fast in the area of the high horse. Everybody knows what that term means. Well, he's on a high horse. Get off your high horse. God never said he hated the child molester. Society does, but God didn't. God never said he judged the drug addict. Society does, but God didn't. God never said that he detested the alcoholic. News media does. God doesn't. You know what God said he hates? I hate pride. And pride is a separator. Pride is a disqualifier. Pride will make you think you are all of that, a bag of chips, and you will never be what God wants you to be and do what God wants you to do because God moves through humility, a humble and contrite spirit, not a know-it-all spirit, not a narcissistic spirit, not a spirit that says, I know more than anybody else. I don't need any guidance, any counsel, any, any pastor, any authority. I know what I'm doing. It's time that some of us just might need to realize we might be on a high horse. And notice I'm looking at nobody when I say that except my notes. The third horse that we need to be careful of is the hobby horse. A lot of times in our life, we don't have time for the things of God because we're so busy pursuing our hobbies. I love to fish. I love to hunt. I love to jet ski. But the day I love to hunt and jet ski and fish more then I love the things of God are the days that my hobby is out of order. I love to invest in the things of God. I love to sow in the things of God. But the day that I sow more in my hobby than I sow in the house of God, that's the day that my hobby is out of order. There are many people that, that mentally believe that they cannot make it unless they work 70 hours a week where God has encouraged us to take a day of rest, take a season, we spend time with our family. And the only difference between a workaholic and an alcoholic is what? Shout it at me. Spelling. The spelling. That's the, only, that's the only difference in the eyes in the eyes of God. But a lot of us, we feel like that if we're not working every single day of the week, every single hour of the week, and here's what becomes scary. You ready for this? Your job becomes your hobby. You would rather work than do anything else. You're, 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 you're always focused on debt. You're always focused on bills. You're always focused on more money. If I work more hours, I get more money to solve the problems. But I've been watching people that work 40 hours at tithe and 70 hours that don't. And the ones that work 40 hours in tithe seem to have some kind of peace or life fulfillment and satisfaction from the things of God. If you're a tither, give yourself a hand. Yeah. If you're not a tither, we have people taking pictures right now of the non-clapper. Non Come on, let's give the Lord a hand clap of praise. We're faithful in the kingdom of things of God. 
The last horse I want to bring to your attention, are you ready for this? Are you sure? Is the wild horse. Anybody know what a wild horse is? A wild horse is one who wants to go in the direction that he or she wants to go in and will not submit to any counsel, any correction, any word, any instruction. Enough said. We only have three minutes left to touch the last point. And I, I want to touch the third point. We won't touch the fourth point. The third point that I want to bring to everyone's attention is that you can never start over. Ever. Whatever concept that got out there in the media, it's garbage. Nicodemus said to Jesus, what must I do to be born again? Shall I enter again into my mother's womb? He was not being sarcastic. He was talking to a guy that had raised the dead, healed the sick, walked on water. He knew Jesus had the ability to put him back in his mother's womb if that's what it took. And Jesus said, no, I'm not talking about entering again into a woman's womb. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. That whosoever, listen, wherever you were when you met Christ as a whosoever, whether you were a scholar, a college student, a drug addict, an alcoholic, a, 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 in prison, in jail, wherever you, wherever you were, the moment you gave your heart to God, gave you, God gave you authority to start again. And in order to start again, you've got to believe that God wants you to have the ability to start again. We cannot go back three years old, five years old, 12 years old. We cannot, re, we cannot rethink the things that, that we grew up believing. We cannot, we cannot get rid of the tr traditions in our heart and spirit. Those are a part of our legacy. Those are a part of our heritage. But we can decide, I'm tired of being where I'm at. Tomorrow, I want to be somewhere else. And I think that the Daystar Singer two years ago wrote a song just for, the, just for that particular conference. And it says this, you can begin again. You can't. You can step back into the things of God. You can step back in the place that God has for you. You can step back. The word justification means just as if I had never failed. That's what the blood of Jesus does. We've seen this beautiful white snow. We woke up Christmas Day. The lawn, the driveway, it was pure. Everything was white. There wasn't a blemish. There wasn't a dirt. There wasn't. It was gorgeous. Some of us hated to walk across the lawn because we didn't want our footprints to mess up the beautiful snow. Jesus said, though Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be as wool. Though they be as crimson, they shall be white as snow. He takes our filthy hearts, our dirty hearts, our unclean hearts, and by the confession of our mouth, the ability to speak a creative miracle, we give our heart to God. He comes into our heart, and he changes everything, and he says, old things are passed away. All things are become new. Forget the things which are behind and reach towards the things which are before. I'm going to give you a goal. I'm going to give you a prize, and you're going to do it with the help of my son. How cool is that? How cool is that? I conclude with a story, a testimony of a man by the name of Stephen J. Cannell. Does that name sound familiar to anybody? Good. Ding, ding, ding. Jeopardy, you win the... 
Stephen, Jake, and Nail failed first, fourth, and tenth grades. He couldn't read and comprehend like other kids in his class could. He would spend five hours with his mother studying for a test and then fail it. When he asked his friend who got an A how long he had set up for the test, he replied, I didn't. Stephen concluded that he just wasn't intelligent. He was a dummy. But I simply decided, watch this, as an act of will to put it out of my mind. I simply refused to think about it. Instead, I focused my energies on the things that I was good at, and that was football. If it hadn't been for football, which I excelled at, I don't know what would have happened to me. I got my self-esteem from playing sports. Putting all of his energy into football, he earned interscholastic honors as a running back. From football, he learned that if he applied himself, he could achieve excellence. Watch this. By playing football, he learned that he could achieve excellence by applying himself. Later, he was able to transfer that belief in himself to his career, which oddly enough turned out to be writing scripts for television. Eventually, he formed his own production studio where he created produced and wrote over 350 scripts for 38 different shows, including the A-Team. How many ever heard of that? The Rockward Files, our, our 70s, the Beretta, 21 Jump Street, the Comish, Renegade, and Silk Stockings. How many remember Silk Stockings? At the height of his studio career, he had over 2,000 people on his payroll. And if that isn't enough, after he sold his studio for millions of dollars, he went on to write 11 best-selling novels. Stephen realized that if life hands you a lemon, you do something with it. You, do, you either throw it so fast that you get a million-dollar contract playing baseball, or you make the greatest lemonade the nation's ever tasted and you sell it for millions. He, he decided that what I have been given, I am going to do something with. Let me tell you something. We can spend the rest of the afternoon in counseling, and you can tell me what a failure you are that you have two left hands. because that would hurt my feelings I'm left-handed. You, you can tell me what a loser you are, what a failure you are, all the mistakes you've made, how bad you messed up, time in prison, laws you've broken, fines that you've got, jobs that you've been fired, but you cannot argue the word of God. You may not have five, you may not have three, but you have one thing that God gave you that nobody else can do quite like you. You have a talent. You have an ability you have a destiny. You have a heritage. You have a legacy. You have something that God has entrusted you with. There is something that no one can do it like you. You are, you are the cat's meow. You are the bag of chips. You are, that, you are that light in a dark place that God wants to use. And maybe you may not be the guy that produces silk stockings. Maybe you're the guy that takes the cross from Jesus and helps him carry it another 30 feet. He said, when you do it to the least of these, you've done it to me. You might be the guy that clothes the, the, the naked and feeds the hungry. You might be the guy that has the drug rehab program. You might be the guy that has the power of intercessory prayer. You might be the guy that, that the Lord sends as a servant to go and compel them to come in. I'm not sure what it is, but I do know this. You have something that only you can do for God and 2011, you need to find out what it is. You need to nurture it. You need to stroke it. You need to baby it. You need to pamper it. You need to bless it. You need to increase. You need to do something with it. Wendy, if you'll help me. My last point was simply take advantage 
of the tools, the opportunities, the mentors that you have in your life. The books, the how-to books are phenomenal. You, you, you can go to Cracker Barrel and learn how to play the harmonica. It's scary. It's scary. Everywhere you go, there's a how-to. You can do this. You can be this. You can, you can, you can watch the programs. You, all, all the things that you get, all the, all the millions of books, the thousands of instructors, the leadership in your life. I remember about, and some of you try to figure this out, probably only Annette would probably figure this out. But about 10 years ago, there was a, a family that came into my life, and they were in trouble. She had caught him in areas that he shouldn't have been involved in. They started coming. She already made up her mind that she was going to divorce. Ironically, Pastor Ron and I were doing a marriage conference in Gatlinburg for a local church. And they drove up to be a part of that. In the middle of that conference, she got so angry, she left, walked away. $50,000 sports car, walked away from all of his money and managed to get herself back here without, without his aid or help. She decided that a couple days later that if he would submit to counsel that she would not file for divorce. So we, we began counseling. And I gave him a great book to read that would help his marriage. And he said, I'm not a great reader, which was a cop-out because he could read a John Deere tractor manual and do anything with the tractor. Hello. We do what we want to do. He said, I can't, I can't read. I said, okay, then at least put the book out where she can see it, where she thinks you're reading it. So he puts it out. They get in a fight. He tells her what I told him to do. Well, it takes a year before she ever trusts me. But today, they're still together. They're still married. They're serving God. Their kids are in church. They've been blessed with a brand new baby. They are where they're at today is because they trusted somebody to speak what God's word has to say. In him, in him, there is hope. In him, there is breakthrough. In him, there is freedom. You don't have to stay where you are. You don't have to stay bound to debt. There are ways to get out of debt. You don't have to stay bound to doubt. There are ways to get out of doubt. Number one, stop hanging around people that have an Eeyore mentality. And don't make me do my Eeyore personation. Get, get around people that are accomplishing, that are solving, that are excelling, that are taking a lemon and making lemonade. Hang out with the person that's trying to find the 327th purpose for peanuts. That's the kind of person you want to hang out with. Get the drug out of your life. Be accountable. You smoked 10 yesterday, smoke 9 today. You smoke 9 today, smoke 8 tomorrow. Begin to reward yourself with when you smoke less, eat more honey buns. Do something to compensate that. Drink a Red Bull. Bless yourself. Get someone in your life that will coach you. Get someone in your life that will encourage you. Get someone in your life that says, I lost 100 pounds, not by surgery, but by eating correctly. Hang around those people. Rub shoulders with them. I don't feel God. Start getting godly music into your, into your, into your spirit. I got in the truck this morning with Sergeant Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band. I want to tell you, there was nothing spiritual about that song. 
I think Paul left it in there from yet. No, Brad left it. I'm going to blame Brad. Brad left it in there from yesterday. Make, make definite decisions to better yourself. Quit dressing sloppy. Dress for success. I don't have a great wardrobe. Just what you, what you have, make sure it's clean as ironed. And it had the price tag on the pocket. Treat yourself the way that God is treating you. Love on yourself. Spoil yourself. God brought you here for a reason. There is greatness in you. This church has produced over 40 full-time ministers in, in the gospel right now. 40. We pastor some of the greatest ministries in the world. In the world. Pastor Ron and I were evangelizing. We convinced Judy Jacobs to leave Lee College and travel with us for a year. We got her out of the nest. And now she's touching the world. There's greatness all around you. There's great people all around you. You're in the process of becoming a world changer. We desperately need world changers. And I don't want to hurt your feelings, but the Democratic nor the Republican Party has a solution for where we are. We need a revival. America needs to get saved. If America would simply start tithing and the favor and the blessing of God, that's it. If, an, if America would be identified as a tithing nation, I'm going to tell you what, it would change the world. And let me tell you about the 1840 and 60 rule. Can I? When you're 18 years old, you think everybody's talking about you and it matters. When you're 40 years old, you think some people are talking about you and it matters. When you're 60, you realize nobody was talking about you. They were doing other stuff. You can go from where you're at to where God wants you to be. You can, you can, you can out of the ashes of Thomas Edison's fire, his attitude said, go get your mom. I wanted to see this fire. I wanted to, not, not saying, oh my God, all of my inventions, all of my paperwork, all my patents, everything I, by the government, it's crash and burn. No, the attitude was, this is a fresh start. I met yesterday with the precious, precious son, spiritual son in my life. He will be one of the voices that will speak on our birthday. Watch the, watch the enemy try to separate us. In several years, there was kindness, but no relationship. And God healed that, and now there's relationship. And some things are happening in the corporate world. And the main thing of it is somebody, some general manager, wants his position to go to somebody else. So they're trying to trash him and hurt him and wound him. And bump him and, just, and, and degrade him, disqualify him. He took a lesser possession, $5,000 a year cut in pay. No longer could he orchestrate his own hours. Now he's got to work on Sunday. He's got to work that, that, that typical grunge. Yesterday, as we sat and ate, he made me aware. The general manager of Crackerville approached him and said, I've been all kinds of management, every phase, every level. He said, but this position right here, I've made more money as a manager of this Cracker Barrel than any other job I've ever done, I want to plug you in to where I was. I want to bring you to where I am. And I told him, had you not been fired, had you not been under attack, had you not lost your, your salary, had you not lost your promotion, you'd have never sought another direction in your destiny. You'd never sought another future. There are reasons why doors close. 
There's a reason why we lose our job. There's a reason why people remove themselves from our life. There's a, there's a reason why we separate ourselves from the, There's a reason why all things are working together for our good. All things, God said. He's working everything together. Let 2011 be a year that you break some old habits and you start some new ones. Make some, make some goals in your life. Short-term goals. They don't have to be major goals. Just, just things that if you really try, you can make it happen. You can do it. As every head is bowed and every eye is closed, it would not be fair today to conclude this great worship and praise and fellowship and not give an opportunity to reconnect with the things of God. If you're away from God today and you feel like today God has brought you here, some things have made sense, the music's made sense, the worship's made sense, some of the teachings made sense, I want to reconnect with God. I don't want to live 2011 the way I lived 2010. I want to stop blaming others, stop making excuses. I want to stop disqualifying. I want to, I want to step in that relationship. I want, to, I want to be not just at that banquet table, but I want to be that servant that goes and brings others and they, they get a breakthrough because of my effort. I want to make a difference in someone's life. I'm away from God right now. I'm away from His purpose and His plan. I'm not where I need to be. And if you promise not to embarrass me, bring attention to me, call attention, send somebody or call me out. I want to make, it, I want to make a, an effort today to let God know I'm not happy where I am and I want, to, I want to be where God wants me to be and I want God to know it.